Father James's heir and Colin will lead us in that as we stand to sing together. When Zion's fortunes God restored, it was a dream come true. Armors were then with laughter filled, our tongues with songs anew. Armors were then with laughter filled, our tongues with songs anew. The nation said, The Lord has done great things for Israel. The Lord did mighty things for us, and joy our hearts knew well. The Lord did mighty things for us, and joy our hearts knew well. Restore our fortunes, gracious Lord, like streams in desert soil. A joyful harvest will reward the weeping sower's toil. A joyful harvest will reward the weeping sower's toil. The man who bearing seed to sow goes out with tears of grief. Will come again with tears of joy, bearing his harvest sheaf. Will come again with songs of joy, bearing his harvest sheaf. <clears throat> need to apologize from the get-go. I've not been well, so <laughs> hopefully we can make it through this evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to um, Nehemiah chapter 11. It's on page 496. 496. <clears throat> and even though strange person, though I am, I enjoy reading Hebrew names. We're not going to do that tonight <laughs> for all of these. <clears throat> there will be a quiz afterwards, however. So, you know, <clears throat> the meanings of all these names and the proper pronunciation. So, <clears throat> I just want to read uh, the first uh, portion of this chapter, uh, and then we'll move through all of this. So, hear now God's word from Nehemiah chapter 11. Uh, the first uh, several verses. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, 
And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on his own property in various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. So before we look at this passage and what it has to say to us in the context of the whole book of Nehemiah, I want you to just stop and think back to some point in history. I don't care when that is, whatever's, you know, your favorite portion of history. And when you think of that, who do you think about? If it's some battle, do you think of the nameless grunts, so to speak, who died? Or is it the heroes, the generals? We generally think of just the leaders and not the everyday people and what they went through to make those events happen. Or my wife and I watched some of the proms, the last night of the proms last night. You know, what's that about? Eight weeks of music. Is it just the conductor? (laughs) You know, if it was just the conductor, no one would come. Why? He can't play all the instruments. He can't do everything. It's not even just the orchestra. There's singers, multiple singers. It's all kinds of people that are involved in that. Not to mention the nameless people behind the scenes that you never see to make it all possible for it to happen, all the, the people who run the equipment, technicians to make it possible to, for it to go out over the airways, people you don't have a clue what their name is. And yet if they weren't there doing their job, it wouldn't happen. Well, I think Nehemiah 11 is kind of like that. <laughs> it's talking about not just the big leaders, but the everyday people that made up the people of God. And it draws a kind of a spotlight on them in a very unique way. But as we look at this passage, <clears throat> you have to see it in the context of the whole book. And the book of Nehemiah is not there in the scriptures to just provide us with an example of biblical leadership. It's used for that. But I don't think that's why it's there any more than any other portion of scripture. Scripture is God's self-revelation. It's God saying to us, this is what I'm like. He does that through the history of his people. So we look at various individuals, and sometimes our attention gets drawn to them, and we lose sight of the fact that they're just there to show us how God interacts with his people. And so as we look at this passage, there's nothing said about God. It's about these people and what they're doing. But God's showing us who he is. And the whole context of this book is God has been faithful to the covenant over and over and over and over again. That's good news and bad news. 
He's been faithful to the covenant in calling Abraham, putting the children of Israel into Egypt, redeeming them through the wilderness into the land, and keeping them and keeping them in the midst of the time of judges. Then when the monarchy, the people sinned again and again and again, not just once or twice, not just in minor slips, but they provoked God year after year after year. And yet God had said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And he kept those promises. But he also said, if you break my covenant, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to cast you out of the land. And he's done that. These people in Nehemiah know that well. They've come back from exile. They know God has kept covenant. Not only the good stuff, but the bad stuff as well. But they also know that he's brought them back. Not just a happenstance, not just because some Persian king decided, oh, it might be a good idea to let these people go back. They understand that God's been true to his covenant, and they're there reaping the benefit, not of what they've done, but of God's covenant faithfulness. This is all about what God has done through his grace in bringing his people back into the land. And we've seen that. They've rebuilt this wall miraculously in a short time. We saw last week how they've enacted this covenant. They've renewed their covenant commitments to God. Why? In order to earn favor? No, because of what he's done. It's a response of faith to God's faithfulness. So we've seen all of these things happen. And now we come to this chapter. But as we think about this, you have to think about what's your picture of the return of people from exile? I don't know about you, but sometimes I think, you know, they kind of were this large horde of people that left Babylon en masse, and they come, ta-da, into Jerusalem, kind of trumpets blasting and so forth and so on. And the picture you get here in this chapter, if you read, start between reading between the lines, I don't think it was like that. I think it was dribs and drabs kind of come back in pieces and they settle here and there in the land. Some settle in Jerusalem, but most of them were out on the land. It wasn't a big parade. It was God's people thankful to be back in the land, yes, but thinly populated with a lot to be done. And so we have this idea of what's going on. They come back, responding in covenant faithfulness to God's covenant faithfulness. And as we look at these next three chapters, which we'll be doing over, Lord willing, I will be doing with you over the next three weeks. As we look at this chapter here in 11, it's a place for everyone where the emphasis is on everyone having a place in the overall service and people of God. Next week we'll look at chapter 12, about priests and this procession. It's a mind-bending picture of worship as they parade around the city walls and come together at the temple to worship God. And then chapter 13 is a need for ongoing reform. I think it's a realistic 
end of this book, not some fairy tale, and they all lived happily ever after, and everything was wonderful, and they all were just totally orthodox in everything that they did. No. (laughs) Nehemiah gets angry because they've slipped back, and they need more reform. And all this shows us, yes, God has been faithful. He's kept his covenant. He's got the people back. But there's a lot yet to be done. And what this is all saying to us is the Messiah has to come. This is not the end. This is marvelous. But it's pointing us to Jesus. That he has to come. He's the one that this is all about. So as we look at this passage, you have to ask, what's the point? There's three different sections of this this text. First of all, there's this kind of introduction, a kind of a a demographical dilemma that has to be solved. And then there's a a long list of wonderful Hebrew names, um, and there are different roles and responsibilities. And then the third section is a list of towns. I had a slide prepared, but you would never have been able to read it, so I just thought, forget it, um, to show you where all these towns were. So there's a threefold division in this passage. First of all, and we'll spend most of our time looking at this first section, this demographic dilemma and how that was solved. So we look at this. And as we understand, to understand what's being said here in these first several verses and why they're doing this, you have to go back in the book of Nehemiah and recall two very important matters which have already been mentioned. The first is the covenant renewal that Harry preached on last week from chapter 10. In chapter 9, the people gather in an act of corporate repentance, confessing their sins as well as the sins of their fathers, which had resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile, as Yahweh, in faithfulness to the covenant, finally brought the curses to bear and cast them out of the land. At that time, in chapter 9, the law was read and explained Additionally, in an act of worship, the people recounted the faithfulness of Yahweh through their whole history. They talked about how God had been faithful again and again and again. That's what makes up this covenant renewal. They're conscious that they're there because of God's faithfulness. And it's this response to that that they say, we've got to make a covenant. We've got to put this in writing. This is important. But they promise to make this covenant. And they also promise not to neglect the house of God. So the people are once more living in covenant relationship with their God. And they long to demonstrate their gratitude to Yahweh for his faithfulness toward them. And they show that faithfulness in what they do in chapters 11 and 12. They're not seeking to earn their salvation. This is not about, okay, now let's see, what can we do to really impress God? This is, we're here because he's been so gracious to us. And they're overwhelmed by that. And out of that, 
gospel motivation, they do various things. And we'll see that here in this chapter and next week in chapter 12. Secondly, we have to go back to Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, where the crying need for the repopulation of Jerusalem is spelled out. There we read, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So great, you got this city, and there's this nice new wall all around it, but there's a handful of people living there, no houses. This is your capital? This is your religious center? It's like, ugh, something's got to be done about that. Archaeological evidence indicates a drop in over 75% of the number of occupied sites following the Babylonian conquest of Judah. So in other words, the land was only one quarter populated afterwards. Think about the decimation of that. So small numbers which returned are thinly spread over the entire land and very few indeed had chosen to live in Jerusalem. To be sure, the wall of Jerusalem had been rebuilt in record time. There's a few leaders, especially priests and Levites, living in Jerusalem. However, as we'll see, after returning to the land from exile, most of the people were living on their own land, out with Jerusalem, where they could make a living sustain themselves, live closer to the trade routes. But it was their property because God had given that. That's part of the covenant promises. And that's why they're living there. Personal wealth, ease, safety, were at least part of the reason the people lived further away from the religious center and the worship of Israel. But it's a mixed picture Not only the joy and the dedication of God's people at the return to the land and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and this covenant commitment to God, but also a level of religious indifference, maybe even self-interest, played a role in where the people decided to live. One thing, however, as we look at these first verses is crystal clear. Jerusalem needed to be repopulated if things were going to move forward. This wonderful covenant renewal was great, but without people in Jerusalem, that can't be sustained. So something has to be done. People need to move to Jerusalem. If the house of God was not going to be neglected and the renewal of the covenant relationship was not to stall and revert back to the pattern that Harry so aptly described as takeoff and crash landings, They'd had enough of that. They didn't want that again. So something's got to happen. So what do they do? They go, Nehemiah, bail us out here. Help us. Give us wonderful ideas. Is that what the text says? No. Nehemiah is not mentioned here in this whole chapter. And yet it's a book about him, supposedly. But it's not about him. It's about God dealing with his people. Here the chapter opens up with some distinctions in the composition of the people of God. First of all, there's a distinction based on responsibility. There are leaders. This is not total democracy. Everybody's the same. There's no no changes whatsoever. There are leaders. 
And the word that's used here for leader means chiefs or princes. And verse 3 adds that they are heads of the province. These are governmental leaders. They're not religious leaders. But they're leaders of the people, the text says. And that expression in Hebrew is the people, God's covenant people. That's where the emphasis lies here. Not on the leaders, but they're leaders of the people. God's people, the people of the covenant with Yahweh. These leaders had been given a responsibility to lead the people of God on his behalf. Leaders are needed. But as we'll hopefully see, the emphasis in this chapter is on everyone among God's people doing their part. So as a whole, they might worship and serve their covenant God for what he had done for them. But the text doesn't just leave us with the leaders. It talks about the rest. Almost sounds like, ugh, you know, you got the great leaders and then there's the rest. But that word, the word that's used here, doesn't give that connotation at all. These are not leadership positions and described the rest being kind of, ugh, yeah, those other people that are over there. It's not used to demean those people. Rather, the term that's used here in the rest of Scripture, it's translated as remnant. And it's charged with covenantal significance. These weren't just any people. These were God's covenant people, the remnant that he had caused to return to his land in covenant faithfulness. That's this rest that's there. It's charged with God's covenant care for them and love for them. This was the remnant of the people, Yahweh's covenant people, who had renewed their covenant relationship with him. In Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 20, he had spoken of the rest of the people as the remnant of the inheritance who God, Yahweh, would pardon and restore in his steadfast covenant love and fulfillment of his promises. And these people must have had that ringing in their ears, we're this rest. God's forgiven us. He's brought us back. And closer to the time of Nehemiah and Zechariah, chapter 8, the prophet Zechariah speaks of Yahweh's jealousy for Zion, Jerusalem, where he will dwell in the midst of his remnant, this rest, the remnant that he would save and cause to possess all of the blessings of the covenant, including that Yahweh would dwell in Jerusalem on his holy mountain, and that the city would be full of old people who would walk around with staves because they're so old they needed those to get around. And it would be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Just read Zechariah 8. It's amazing. And yet here in this day, Jerusalem's empty. When is this going to come to pass? Something's got to be done. I don't want you to start to feel the kind of pressure on the people. It's like, okay, we've renewed the covenant. We've got the wall up. Yeah, great. The temple's there. The streets are empty. Where are the boys and girls playing in the streets? Where are the old people? Something's got to be done. And so they undertake to do something. 
Secondly, there's a distinction not only between responsibility, there's the leaders and the rest. There's a distinction based on geography. We're told that the leaders lived in Jerusalem, which is quite natural since that was the governmental center and the region where they had to perform their administrative tasks. So, of course, they lived there. The rest, the remnant, live in the towns of Judah on his own property. That's confirmed in Nehemiah 7, verse 6. Verse 3 adds that everyone lived on his property, and the word that's used there for property is the word possession. And while it's not the same word that's used elsewhere for the inheritance, it's very significant in many ways. The term is used in Genesis 17, 8 to describe the land of the promise that God covenants to give to Abraham and his descendants. That's where they're living on this fulfillment of the covenant promises. They've just renewed their covenant, reviewing God's covenant faithfulness, and now they're living on their possession. Not because they've earned it, they've fought for it, they've got it, but because God has given it to them by his grace. It's a word that's also used in the description of the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, where the land is to revert back to the original owner as a picture of restoration that God would give them this land forever. Now they're there. They're living on the land. This is a good thing. This is God saying, I've brought you back. You're at home. You've got your land. So the fact that the vast majority of the people of God in Nehemiah's day lived on their own land is actually not a bad thing. What I mean is that it's not necessarily intended as a judgmental statement. Oh, you got the leaders living in Jerusalem, but the rest, they're off there on the land doing their own thing. That's not the point here. Rather, it's a demonstration of God's faithfulness in placing them back on the land that he had promised to give to Abraham. And third and finally, there's a distinction based on ancestry. Verse 4 seems to indicate that only people from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin lived in the land. These two tribes had resettled the one Persian district of Judah, and yet they retain their ancestral tribal names, and so it's one Persian province, but there's people from Judah and Benjamin living in this one province. Interestingly, 1 Chronicles 9.3 indicates that there are people from Ephraim and Manasseh who had also come back. So although Nehemiah gives us a picture that it's maybe just Judeans and Benjamites, the rest of Scripture says there were people from other places as well. So as we look at this overall picture <coughs> that the first couple verses give us, this survey, we see that the people are living in Jerusalem, but the bulk of people are living scattered out in their own villages, scattered throughout the land. There's an immediate need somehow to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. And in the latter part of verse 1 through verse 2, we have the remarkable solution chosen to meet this need. And it's just like dropped down. Boom. We have this setting. The people are back. This covenant fulfillment. Wonder. 
But we've got to do something about it. The first thing that strikes me as we read Nehemiah verses, in 11 verses 1 and 2 is what is not said here. First, we're not told how they arrived at this. Was there a gathering of all the people? Did they have some kind of assembly of everybody? And go, okay, we've got to do something. Any ideas? We're not told. Was there, was there lists of all of the people and all of the families? Were they drawn out and kind of saying, okay, we've got to get you, you, and you? We're not told. Were representatives of each village or perhaps each tribe sent to Jerusalem to say, okay, this is our idea from our village. You go tell them this is what we should do. Again, we're not told. Did they discuss various methods to meet the need to increase the number of people living in Jerusalem? Whose idea is this? There's no name mentioned attached to this idea. What we do know from this passage is that it was not something which originated with or was imposed by the leadership. It's the rest, the remnant, that comes up with this idea. It was the rest of the people of God who both initiated it and implemented it. Think about it. The people had renewed their covenant relationship with Yahweh. They'd committed to serve him. And then they come up with this solution to repopulate the city as an expression of that. Not to earn favor, but to show their delight in him. Do you sense the unity and the parity among the people of God here? To be sure, there are leaders. Everyone is not equal in that sense. However, we see no evidence here of a heavy-handed leadership or of a disregard for the people and their ideas. We see, what we see here is an interest on the part of all the people to be faithful to the covenant to worship and to serve him who had been so faithful over the years to be faithful to their covenant God and serve him the best way possible and so what method do they choose how would you go about this it's like okay we have to populate this place we need Volunteers for Monday mix. I want you, you, and you. Gone. <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> Not here. It's a very interesting method that they choose. The impression, though, that we're given is that they move straight to it. It wasn't like this took months and months to work out. They go, oh, we need to populate city. Let's do this. Boom. They cast lots. It's like, what? For us to understand that, you need to kind of back up a wee bit and, and think about it. In our society, casting lots might give the impression of chance or randomness. Like, who would suggest that in a free church? Let's cast lots. <laughs> You'd be at the next presbytery meeting on trial. <laughs> However, in the Old Testament, casting lots was consistently viewed as indicative of revealing God's will. You think of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Not chance. And so this was a way of saying, God, you help us. You reveal to us who goes to Jerusalem. 
We're going to cast lots and do this. Casting of lots was not only equitable, but it allowed the choice to be in God's hands as to who would need to move house from the town into Jerusalem. It seems that those who were designated by Lot accepted it as God's will and were satisfied to do his bidding and were even praised, as we'll see, by the rest of the people. There's no hint here of, are you kidding me? I just got settled in. You can't ask me to move to Jerusalem. I don't care what that lot says. No, none of that. We have to populate Jerusalem. How do we do that fairly? Let's cast lots. And the people do it, and they respond. It's fair without allowing for exceptions by some. It's like, well, you know who I am? Excuse me, but I'm not in the lot, okay? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, not, I don't, I'm above that. Or, do you know my needs? I, I can't do this. I have to, you know. My exception is, no, there's none of that here whatsoever. There's no coddling. It's not saying, I have special needs and you have to take care of my special needs. It's, what does our covenant commitment to God require of us? That we show how grateful we are for his grace to us. And how do I respond to that? The point here is that everyone is treated identically. And everyone works together to meet the need. It's interesting, the portions that are used. Okay, we've got to select people. How many? How many go? Let's go 574 people go to Jerusalem. No. (laughs) It's a tenth. Hmm. I don't think that's an accident. (laughs) They said, we're going to have one out of ten of all of us are going to move to Jerusalem. It's a tithe. What was a tithe in the Old Testament? It wasn't earning God's favor. It was saying, all that I am and have is a gift of his grace. And I'm going to give back to him a tenth to show that I acknowledge that. And here we have the people doing that, saying, all of us belong to him. All that we have is a gift from him. And we're giving that back by saying the tithe is going to go back to Jerusalem. So one out of ten are picked through lot. How that works, don't really know. But one of ten were sent into Jerusalem to move house. All of the people belong to the Lord. And they show that. They realize that by this action. Nine out of ten remain in the other towns. In other words, the vast majority remained on their inheritance lands and did not have to move to Jerusalem. The text doesn't say, and they were less spiritual for that. You know, they were lesser people for that. No. This was just the way the lot fell so that all of God's people could be part of that. Some had to go. Some remained on the land so that they could farm it and send produce and take care of those in the city. Not everyone needed to move to Jerusalem, but some did need to. This was a fair and proportional allocation to solve the problem of repopulating the city. And again, you have to think about the implications of this. 
We've moved house quite a bit. <laughs> Across oceans, move house. But think about what's not said here. There's a roll of the dice, so to speak, we would say. A lot's cast. And now you've got to uproot, move house with all that that entails. Not a fun job. Painful. Your kids are going, but my friends, I can't. (laughs) What's going to happen? And it's not just the pain of moving. It's questions about the future. What am I going to do? How are we going to live? We have a farm here. We've got animals. We have a vineyard. We can take care of ourselves. What are we going to do in Jerusalem? It's a tiny little place. Inside those walls, how are we going to live there? The reality of this has to set into us to understand. This is not just, oh, this is wonderful. I'm going to do this for the Lord. This was real. These were real people facing the complexities of a move. Why? So they could be saved? So they could earn something in God's sight? No. But because they loved the Lord. Because they had seen him provide for them again and again and again. We need to return to the previous chapter. This covenant commitment that all of the people had made. The solution to the repopulation of Jerusalem is the response of all of God's people to Yahweh's faithfulness to the covenant. It was a response not of duty or of obligation, but of faith in and love for their God. This was their way of saying, I love you. You've provided for me, so I'm going to do this. Additionally, although it was most certainly difficult, again, it's fair, and it did fulfill the need to repopulate Jerusalem. Everybody's treated impartially, and there was an equitable Allocation of the responsibility that the entire people had of repopulating. That wasn't just the responsibility of a few people, but of all the people. So here we have a picture of a place for everyone amongst God's people, of all living together in harmony and covenant faithfulness to their God. Kind of reminds me of what goes on in the early history of the church in Acts 4 and Acts 6, of how the church solved some of the issues that it faced. In Acts 4, those who had sold it in order to provide for those who had need. Not something comes down from the apostles, we want you, you must do this if you're going to be a good member and standing in our church. They responded to what God had done and did that. Or then again over in Acts 6, You have Jewish Christians, Greek Christians. There's problems with the widows of the Greeks. So what happens? The apostles say, appoint some people to take care of this. That's it. The people present names, and interestingly, the names are all Greeks, to take care of these Greek widows. But the church worked it out. Everybody was equitable in that. It wasn't a leadership down from on high. This is what you have to do. And so we see that in the New Testament as well. But the text goes on. NIV is somewhat weak, I think, here. Um, 
Just trying to find how it says it. The point here is that the people blessed those who went off to Jerusalem. They acknowledge their sacrifice, their willingness to go. But this wasn't just a, an offer to say, well, you know, if somebody's got to go, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be willing, hoping that it never happens. <laughs> the word that's used here that they willingly offered is the word for free will offering. And in the Old Testament, you had sacrifices that were required. If you sinned, blood had to be shed. An animal had to die in your place. A free will offering was saying, I love you, Lord. I just I can't contain myself. I've got to give you something to show you how much I love you. And there's key places where this comes to expression in the Old Testament. When the tabernacle's built, Moses calls for gifts, and the people just mound him up with gifts. Free will offerings for the house of God. Remember the context here? They won't neglect the house of God. Well, this isn't about monetary gifts. It's about saying, I'm going to move. Another place in the Old Testament where this is used is when Solomon dedicates the temple, or the, the temple is about to be dedicated in David's day. And there's again free will offerings. One time I went through and, and, and tallied that and did a conversion of you know, monetary from that day to ours. And this is like billions of dollars were given. Why? Because they were mandated to do this? No. It was a free will offering. And that's the picture here. That the, all of the people are blessing these people who are moving because they're giving up. They're doing this freely. They're offering themselves to the Lord in an act of worship. The picture is not one of duty here, of obligation. It's not a picture of some privileged people of rank and the rest bearing the brunt of the responsibilities. But it's a picture of everyone jointly carrying the load so that they can worship the Lord. The picture is expanded in the rest of the chapter, and we don't have time to go over all these wonderful names, <clears throat> so I don't know how you're going to get into heaven. Um, it's kind of hard. Um, <coughs> if you can't pronounce these names, I'm just not sure whether you'll ever make it. But there are lists that are given, name lists, uh, here in, in chapter 11, verses 3 to 9. It's similar to one in, in First Chronicles but there's significant differences. And we're not going to go through all of these people's uh, names and their activities and so forth. <coughs> but the point here is that there were people from Judah, from Benjamin, that actually went, and they're named here, at least by their clan heads, as they go into this new endeavor and moving into the city. And you see this in various ways. Numbers are given, so you, you can tally this up, and we'll talk about that in a second. They're valiant men in the sense of they're trustworthy. They're men who could defend the city if need be. But they're also men who depended on God's Spirit in order to lead them and guide them. There's people from Judah. There's people from um, Benjamin. And we're told about the people from Benjamin. It's just one clan, evidently, Shalu. 
but then we're told, and his brothers. So it's not just him, but there's others. And he had a, must have had a large family because there's 928 of them. <laughs> so a whole tribe is coming in. And the total from the tribe of Benjamin certainly indicates that this is a large group. It's twice as many as came from Judah. And again, it's an indication of the men. What you have to, and it's a cultural thing of that day, but if you add women and children to this, you start to see the numbers that are uprooting and moving to Jerusalem. There's two overseers of these people, Joel and Judah. And these overseers were not there as taskmasters, but to, as managers to make sure that everything was taken care of. Then we have a list in, in verses 10 to 14 of the priests. And we'll say more about the priests next week as we have another list of names. So study up those Hebrew names over the coming week so you can pass the test. <clears throat> but these priests are there for one thing to worship God. And so it's important that the people knew who was representing them as priests. And so again, there's various different groups that are given here um, and names, but it's not just individuals. It's them and their brothers. And again, you can look at the numbers that are given here. The first grouping, there's 822. In the second grouping, there's 242. And in the third grouping, there's 128. These priests have an overseer, Zabdiel. The total of all the priests is 1,192. Compare that with the numbers that are given in this chapter of the people who come from Benjamin and Judah, which is 1,396. You see there's a large number of priests that are there. But that's to be expected since the central focus of the city is the temple and the worship that's to be conducted there. And the cultural practice is naming just the men. But again, we have to kind of fill in and add women and children. How many? How big were the families? It doesn't say. I think we can safely estimate that there's between eight and 9,000 people that have been mentioned that are moving into the city. And this is a teeny little chunk of land, believe me. So this is going to be packed out with people. They weren't just going, well, we'll get a few people in there and that's it. There's a lot of people. Then there's the gatekeepers. The first of these is Akub. His name means protector. Wouldn't you like to have a gatekeeper? That's, that's his name, <laughs> protector. And Talmon. And they keep watch at the gates. And it wasn't just a matter of saying, okay, you know, it's, it's nighttime now. I've got to close the gates. It's morning. Open the gates. They did that. But they also protected the temple precinct. No one was allowed in that was unclean. And these gatekeepers maintained the worship of Israel in that way. Then again, you have another mention of the rest of Israel. You have a mention of temple servants and the overseers of the Levites, one of whom was Uzi. He was the leader of the singers. I don't think of a choir. These were the worship leaders because worship was sung. Even in Jewish synagogues, they sing scripture. I think we should do that. <laughs> I don't, I'm not volunteering, mind you, but I think we should do that. <laughs> and there's the king's servant. 
But as you look at all of these names, there's a couple names that we have to understand are important. Not important, but kind of funny names. There's one that I tell Judy, I'm going to change my name here. I'll let you guess who that is. Abukaya. Isn't that a good name for an Old Testament professor? <laughs> it means a jar for Yahweh. It's a picture of either Yahweh is the jar and he's in the jar, or that he's a jar for Yahweh. But it, has, it reminds me of what the New Testament talks about being in Christ and Christ in us. This guy's name says that, Yahweh in me, or I'm a jar for Yahweh. These were real people, real families, that in order to serve God, moved into Jerusalem. So we have the whole rest of these people moving in there. To give it equal time, there's a whole list of cities, and we don't have time to go over all of them, but to show where the rest of the people lived, scattered throughout Benjamin and Judah. So you have this whole list of cities. And again, there's lists in other places, and the comparison of them is complex. But the point is, people lived in Jerusalem, and people lived out with Jerusalem. But it's a picture of the whole people of God were together. There's no sense here of conflict. You have this picture of equanimity. There's a place for everybody here. There was a need repopulate Jerusalem. They, had, they came up with a solution. It was fair. Everyone was involved. There's recognition of those who had moved to Jerusalem. They were praised. They were blessed. And then there's those who remained in their towns to serve. What about us today? We have lots of needs in our congregation that need solutions. Maybe God's put you here to come up with those solutions, to serve in that way. Not duty, not obligation, not some, oh, I'm going to harangue you until you get it done, but because you love the Lord and you want to serve him. It's a picture, I think, of what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, where the Ephesians were urged to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Then he talks about God giving gifts to the church, particularly officers, to equip the whole body. Why? So that everybody can go, ah, good, I've got all my needs met, and I'm good, and I really like this, this church. It's for the work of service. And what's the work of service? That the whole body grows up into maturity in Christ. You don't have that language in the Old Testament, in Nehemiah. But that's what it's saying. The whole body has to work together. I'm never going to become mature unless you're doing your bit. And vice versa. That's what's being said here. It's a place for everybody to serve the Lord in building each other up. But two final remarks. As we look at this chapter, and again in the context of the whole book, it's a picture of restoration. It's a picture of what God has done. It's not because these people were so great themselves. 
that they muscled their way back into the, you know, this province of Persia. This is all what God has done. He's been faithful and been faithful and been faithful. He's been gracious to them. And so they're here and they're responding to his grace. That's what a Christian life is. It's not duty, duty, duty. It's saying, Jesus, I'm amazed at what you've done. I love you. I want to serve you. I want to serve your people. But this picture of restoration that's given to us here in Nehemiah, it is restoration. The people acknowledge that and are beside themselves with it. But it's also incomplete. There's towns that are not settled in these lists. There's not everybody is partaking of this. It says, yes, restoration, but it says there's got to be more. Somebody else has to come in order to make it whole. This is life in a fallen world at its best, but there's more restoration to come. So there's this awaiting of ultimate restoration. Nehemiah gives us a picture of what's coming. We live this side of the coming of Christ, and yet we still await the ultimate fulfillment. When he returns, Paul talks about in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is a down payment on that inheritance. So we're going to live one day on our inheritance and be able to fellowship every day with our Savior. That's what we're looking forward to. But it's got to impact the way we live now. Binding us together as God's people in response to his grace. He's provided a place for all of us by his grace. Let's live in thanksgiving to him for that.